This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, please visit the Contributes tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from Gay USA, Code Switch, The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, The David Pakman Show, The Real News Network, and The Majority Report. Speaking of the human rights campaign, they put together a, uh, a video highlights reel of Obama on LGBT and AIDS issues. And it's just, uh, you know, we're all saying farewell. We don't. He wasn't perfect. We oh, no. are complaints. But by comparison, oh, my God. So let's take a little look and remember the Obama years. Our journey is not complete until our gay brothers and sisters are treated like anyone else under the law. For if we are truly created equal, then surely the love we commit to one another must be equal as well. That's why we condemn the persecution of people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. We do these things not only because they are the right thing to do, but because ultimately they will make us safer. We believe in a big America, a tolerant America, a just America, an equal America. We believe in an America where we're all in it together, and we see the good in one another. I want you to know that I expect and hope to be judged not by words, not by promises I've made, but by the promises that my administration keeps. And together we also have to keep sending a message to every young person in this country who might feel alone because they're gay or transgender, got to make sure they know that there are adults they can talk to, that they are never alone, that there is a whole world waiting for them. And I want all those kids to know that the president and the first lady is standing right by them every inch of the way. This fight continues now, and I'm here with a simple message. I'm here with you in that fight. This afternoon, I signed into law the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. President Obama has signed a directive that will mean same-sex partners have hospital visitation rights. We are not a nation that says, don't ask, don't tell. We are a nation that says, out of many, we are one. And now it is my honor to sign this bill into law. This is done. From this day on, Barack Obama will go down in history as the first U.S. president to endorse same-sex marriage publicly. It is important for me to go ahead and affirm that uh, I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. This is an historic political and cultural moment in this country. This is the first administration to release a comprehensive strategy on HIV-AIDS. Because the United States should be at the forefront of new discoveries into how to put HIV into long-term remission, or better yet, eliminate it completely. Gay and lesbian couples now have the right to get married in every single American state. Today we can say, in no uncertain terms, that we've made our union a little more perfect. The White House lit up in rainbow pride colors to show support for today's monumental decision. Historic announcement from the White House tonight, creating the first national monument to gay rights at the site of the Stonewall riots here in New York City. The White House has hired its first openly transgender staff member. Ellen DeGeneres, it's easy to forget now, when we've come so far, just how much courage 
was required for Ellen to come out on the most public of stages almost 20 years ago. If you're ready to continue this journey that we started, keep marching, keep fighting, keep organizing. If we rise to this moment, if we understand this isn't the end point, this is the beginning. It's the answer that led those who've been told for so long by so many to be cynical and fearful and doubtful about what we can achieve to put their hands on the arc of history and bend it once more toward the hope of a better day. It happens when a father realizes he doesn't just love his daughter, but also her wife. It, it happens when a video sparks a movement to let every single young person know they're not alone and things will get better. It happens when people look past their ultimately minor differences to see themselves in the hopes and struggles of their fellow human beings. That's where change is happening. And that's not just the story of the gay rights movement, that's the story of America. And I'm confident we can continue to write another chapter together. Thank you, President Obama. <laughs> and just remember, the only uh, LGBTQ issue that uh, uh, um, uh, Trump has spoken out about is uh, they shouldn't be thrown off buildings by ISIS. Real quick, we want to define some terms here. DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which granted relief from deportations to people who were brought to the U.S. when they were children. FYI, the cutoff is before your 16th birthday. And DAPA is Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents. It was supposed to do a lot of the same things that DACA did, but for people whose children are citizens or lawful permanent residents. All right, let's go. We're here with Janet Murguia. She's president of the National Council of La Raza. Thank you so much for being with us on Code Switch. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. So you made headlines after giving a speech in March of 2014 to the organization that you lead where you said, For us, this president has been the deporter in chief. Any day now, any day now, this administration will reach the two million mark for deportations. It's a staggering number that far outstrips any of his predecessors and leaves behind it a wake of devastation for families across America. So, Janet, I know you feel like the media didn't give enough context in all of its various, you know, Janet Murguia calls President Obama the deporter in chief headlines. So um, now's your chance. Give us the full context for that statement. What was going on at that time in government that made you say that? I was responding to Speaker John Boehner's ludicrous and patently false uh, excuse uh, for not moving comprehensive immigration reform uh, in the House at that time. Mm -hmm. The excuse being that President Obama was refusing to enforce the law. Well, that is an absurd statement given that the reality is that at that point, President Obama had deported more people faster than any other administration. Mm -hmm. And there are some who will quibble with the numbers, but there's no doubt that the president enforced the law vigorously. And the proof is also in the pain, suffering, and 
the anxiety it caused the immigrant and Latino communities. So in the final ledger, how do you grade President Obama on issues of immigration? I mean, on one hand, you have the executive actions, but mm-hmm. also you do have these millions of people who are uh, deported. Yeah, I think there's a few different ways to look at this. And one way is to say that, one, we should recognize that President Obama could not do this alone, you know, despite his best efforts. The leadership in Congress is most responsible uh, for the lack of action, ultimately, on immigration reform. Mm -hmm. And we should make no bones about that. I think it's fair to say, though, that his legacy will be a mixed bag of sorts, Mm -hmm. particularly on immigration. I think it will reflect a, a contradictory mix of policies, some aimed at bringing immigrants out of the shadows, others at removing them uh, from the U.S. Comprehensive immigration reform did not have the benefit like the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare Act did, of a democratically held, uh, controlled House and Senate. I think for us, the president made this political calculation that he had to win Republican support by first showing that he was serious about enforcing the law. Mm-hmm. Right. And Janet, you're on record saying President Obama, you know, that was a failing tactic, you mm-hmm. know, being tough on illegal immigrants in order to play ball with these recalcitrant Republicans and mm-hmm. to get them to the negotiating table. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you rather him do? The fact is, is we don't blame him for the Republican response, which was intransigence and a highly personal opposition <laughs> to any Obama priority. But we do fault uh, the administration for not recognizing this intransigence much earlier and for not having an adequate plan B. And an adequate plan B could have been pursuing administrative relief actions sooner, mm-hmm. including the prosecutorial discretion policy, as well as the DACA mm-hmm. and the DAPA proposals. Could you explain the prosecutorial discretion and how it worked? Sure. There is a uh, sense that enforcement actions are applied equally, and that's what I think everyone imagines. We know that's not true. (laughs) But what happens is that when you're on the enforcement side, you have restrictions based on financial resources and staffing resources so that you can't possibly be enforcing all the laws at any given time across the board. You have to prioritize. That's correct. And so – The idea is a simple one. It's to target those folks who would do us harm and who are a higher threat to our security and use those resources that are precious judiciously and have an official directive and a policy memo that would provide that guidance to federal immigration law enforcement uh, agencies. So what what was the political calculus for not doing that in 2010, 2009? Yeah, I think, again, you know, nobody knows for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were other priorities. But I think on the immigration front, there's some that argue that the administration believed that it could engage Republicans sure. for bipartisan support by actually showing that they were being tough on enforcement and by upping deportations and that that would be an incentive for Republicans then to give the administration and the president credit and sit down at the table and then resolve, address some sort of an immigration reform bill. But they never acknowledged that. Right. 
You know, listening to you, I was thinking about, you know, DACA, DAPA, this prosecutorial executive action that you're talking about. They are all Band-Aids, right? And what you ultimately wanted was comprehensive immigration reform. And I'm wondering, would there have been an executive action, something radical that the president could have done to really push the Republicans to the table, in your opinion? Something that... that I mean, to keep with the metaphor, would pull off the Band-Aid and, and just <laughs> and, and, and get the thing done. I don't know if it would have been radical, but uh, moving forward with these administrative uh, relief options sooner could have actually, some argue, have mobilized Republicans to react and mm-hmm. say, you know what? We don't want him just doing this uh, administratively. Let's sit down and let's figure out a way where we can actually, you know, put more of our viewpoints on what this immigration policy should look like and not just let him act in an authoritative way. Let's put a check on it. Mm -hmm. And that that could have actually driven, some argue, more Republicans. Obviously, some Republicans were saying that if he acted in any administrative way, they weren't going to engage. Hmm. But, you know, when you ask them, okay, what has to happen to get immigration reform? Their first response traditionally has always been, once we secure the border, we'll then work on immigration reform. But when you ask them, okay, what will it take to secure the border? What does that look like? What does that look like? You never got a specific answer. You never could nail down what they would define as securing the border because in their minds, I'm not sure you could ever do enough to secure their border. Or at least they left that impression that there wasn't ever a hardcore plan that would allow for us to then be able to move on and say, the border's secure, now let's move on. Mm -hmm. So we never felt like we could get an answer without that goalpost being moved further and further away. Sure. But at the end of the day, this was really for us, I want to be really clear, Mm -hmm. a moral argument. Right. A humanitarian argument. It's about people. And, it's about people right. and separations of families and suffering and trauma among these children who were affected by this. And if we couldn't get the right political calculation, we felt like we had to argue from a humanitarian and moral perspective the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. And we felt that we had to pursue the administrative relief options because we weren't certain about what politically was ever going to incentivize the Republicans to come to the table. Right. So, Janet, we've been fairly critical here about um, President Obama's legacy around immigration policy and what he didn't do um, to pass through comprehensive immigration reform. But I know that... um, there are things that President Obama did that were positive for the Latino communities that you represent. What is something that you're really proud of him for accomplishing? Sure. Look, we know that immigration is important to Latinos, but not just Latinos, but I think to everyone in this country. We've seen what the effects of a broken immigration system can have for us in terms of the impacts, not just on our economy, but on people's lives. So it is important to talk about immigration and the Obama legacy, Mm -hmm. but we also should recognize that Latinos, like others, are not just one issue (laughs) constituencies. You know, I think when you look at the Affordable Care Act, 
you know, prior to the Obama administration, Hispanics, you know, had the highest rate of uninsured of any group. And there are now over 4 million Latinos with insurance and nearly 9 million Latinos who have added benefits from the Affordable Care Act. Additionally, the uninsured rate uh, has gone from one in three for Latinos to one in four in just a couple of years. That's a huge gain for us. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the establishment of the um, CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Board, what people may not recognize is that Hispanics were very hard hit by the recession. Right. You know, we lost 66% of our wealth, mostly due to foreclosures, many of them needless. Establishing a consumer watchdog is incredibly helpful and is now helping uh, to get Latinos out of the economic hole they were in and protect them in the future from unscrupulous practices. But probably the most significant is uh, and was the appointment of the first Hispanic ever to the United States Supreme Court. Justice Sotomayor. This was a milestone. (laughs) Should we have a shout her out? (laughs) This was a a milestone that resonated deeply within and across the Latino community. You know, Justice Sonia Sotomayor may just be his greatest and unquestionably lasting legacy with the Latino community. And I say lasting because last I checked, There's no ability for this next president to go back and take anybody off the Supreme Court. (laughs) He may be able to add others, but, you know, he can't undo that appointment like he's trying to undo Affordable Care Act or any of these other things. I mean, she is going to be a testament to so many Latinos who have high aspirations and giving us a sense that we can achieve all things and finally have that representation on the highest court of the land. Obama had an interview with George Stephanopoulos on ABC's This Week, and during the interview, there was a little bit of admission on his part regarding why so many Democrats lost in the midterm elections and then, of course, during this past election. In fact, a lot of Democrats started losing after President Obama went into office. Well, here's his answer. Take a look. What has to be a disappointment on the home front is that it looks like the Democratic Party got pretty hollowed out on your watch, about a thousand seats lost in the Congress, Senate, governors, state houses. Is that on you? I take some responsibility for that. I I think that some of it was circumstances, and we were just at the beginnings of a recovery. And whoever uh, is president at that point uh, is going to get hit, and his party is going to get hit. But I think that what is also true is that partly because my docket was really full here, so I couldn't be both uh, chief organizer of the Democratic Party and function as commander-in-chief and president of the United States. Um, we did not uh, begin what I think needs to happen 
over the long haul, and that is rebuild the Democratic Party at the ground level. Uh, and so we've got to do a better job of showing up. And I was able to do that when I was the candidate, but uh, I have not, uh, I've not uh, seen or, or presided over that kind of systematic outreach that I think needs to happen. So uh, President Obama tomorrow is going to give a big speech about his record and, and how well he did. And, and I, I wish he talked about that more when he was president to help uh, Democrats not only get elected, much more importantly, get uh, policy priorities passed. So uh, I, I think that his record is a mixed bag. It's not a black and white issue. So it's it, to say that he didn't do anything right is, is crazy talk. So he got us out of a war. He managed to get us out of a war with Iran. I think he did a very good deal there. Uh, he did do Obamacare, and he had some policy wins. And 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 I actually think he's a very good manager. I don't think he's a very good leader, to be fair. And I, and I'll explain that why in a second. But he's a very competent manager. So you know he didn't run up the deficit. In fact, he reduced the deficit greatly. He. Uh, brought down unemployment, uh, and you have to give him a world of credit for that. The stock market's doing well. You know, that's a mixed bag, but but to some degree of credit un, uh, unquestionably for that as well. Okay, so those are all the upsides. When you look at the downsides, though, I, without getting into all the policy uh, differences, let's just focus here for a second on this topic. The topic is how did President Obama do for his own party, both electorally and in terms of policy. So. In terms of policy, what isn't going to get hollowed out? So Affordable Care Act has some upsides, although we as progressives and specifically on this show said, put some, put a public option in there or any kind of control on prices. If you let private insurance run this thing, they're mm -hmm. gonna run the prices up. And that is exactly what happened, right? So now the Republicans get to turn around and go, prices are up, we're gonna destroy the whole thing, okay? Mm -hmm. And so, and then on the policies, Dodd-Frank, it was incredibly weak financial reform to begin with. Uh, just calling it historic doesn't make it so. And now that's all gone. Under Trump, that, is, that will all be wiped out, okay? So it's ugh, on foreign policy, a little mixed bag. I like the Iran thing, et cetera. But uh, you know, some people are trying to give him credit for getting out of Iraq. Well, actually, Bush signed that uh, order. They were supposed to get out of Iraq. What was he supposed to do, stay another for another eight years? I mean, that would have been an unbelievable betrayal of his voters. So that's not damning with faint praise, if you ask me. But on the issue of electoral success, which then hopefully leads to policy success, it's been, to be fair, an unmitigated disaster. And you actually cannot even make a case to the contrary. The only person who has won consistently as a Democrat under Barack Obama was Barack Obama. So. They lost the House, they lost the Senate. Remember, on the day he gets elected, not only do they have the House and the Senate, they had a supermajority. Mm -hmm. All of it wiped away. The House is gone, the Senate is gone. Not only did the Democrats lose after him, but they lost to the most unpopular candidate in American history. But that's not even the worst part. The states are the worst part. 69 out of the 99 state legislatures are in Republican hands. That is stunning failure. That is gigantic, unprecedented failure. Do you know that under Obama's eight years, the Democrats at the state level lost 900 seats? Could he have been strong if he wanted to? Because some claim, well, first of all, oh, the Republicans opposed him. No, really? 
Yeah, that's how it works. You're supposed to fight past that. FDR was so viciously opposed, they plotted a coup against him, literally, right? And he fought past that and got tremendous gains, not only for the American people, but for his own party. The Democratic Party was so strong for 40 years after FDR. Mm -hmm. Obama's the exact opposite. So, but when it was uh, Obama whose career was on the line, he was as strong as I have ever seen. In 2008, some of the best speeches I've ever seen in my life. That race speech, when he was on the precipice on the Reverend Wright controversy, came out, nailed it. And then I was so curious, because he was so weak as a president for four years, how he was going to run his campaign in 2012. Go back and check my videos on that. And I was like, whoa, here's the tiger again. Mm -hmm. And he ran such a strong campaign that I called it six weeks before the election. I'm like, this is not even close. Obama's going to kill Mitt Romney, and he did. When it's Obama that's involved, he's as strong as he can be. But when he needs to help the states, when he needs to fight for progressive policies or, or democratic wins, national or state level, can't find Barack Obama. Well, I'm really busy, I'm sitting on my desk. You expect me to be commander in chief and the leader of the Democratic Party? Yes, it's not an easy job. Nobody told you it was going to be an easy job. I do expect you to do that. And yes, you're the president, you can delegate. And you can say, okay, here are the guys who are going to be my pipe hitters on this, and here are the guys who are going to carry my blowtorch on that, and let's go get them, right? But he didn't. If your name wasn't Barack Obama, you were so hard pressed to get Obama to move to help you in any way, shape, or form. And that's the reality. You don't like it. You can hate me for it, but I'm right and you're wrong because the proof's in the pudding. Right. 69 out of 99 state houses. Gone, 900 seats gone, House gone, Senate gone, Trump president. That is a record of, on the electoral level, abysmal failure. Failure is always the best way to learn. Retracing your steps till you know. did the Obama administration use state secrets to um, derail challenges to current policies, particularly around, for example, what your book is about drones? Yeah, so in, in, in um, with respect to targeted killing, uh, surveillance, interrogation policy, rendition, um, the Bush administration had created a um, uh, you know, a pattern of invoking state secrets to derail civil litigation, right? So when victims of these policies, um, um, or, or even people who just wanted to challenge the lawful, the, the lawfulness of the policies came to court, uh, the answer that the, the, the Bush administration provided was these cases are too sensitive to be litigated. Uh, and the Obama administration uh, uh, took up those same arguments, made the same arguments in exactly the same way uh, uh, in the surveillance cases and the drone cases. Now there is one case that's in the court in the courts now uh, involving um, the two psychologists who uh, oversaw the the CIA torture program. Um, uh, this is a case that the ACLU brought on behalf of uh, several people who were held in CIA black sites. They are 
suing the people who oversaw their torture. And the Obama administration has not invoked the state secrets privilege in that context. Uh, now, this is a case against private parties, the psychologists. So the administration, the government is not a party, but the government could have tried to derail the case and it hasn't. So I take that as a promising sign. I think that um, uh, the administration was right not to invoke the privilege in that context. And now for the first time, we will have a court address the lawfulness of these uh, of these policies. Uh, on that issue of um, the use of torture, Donald Trump said torture works. OK, folks, believe me, it works. OK, and waterboarding is your minor form, but we should go much stronger than waterboarding. Mm-hmm. Trump said. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this shows a kind of uh, indifference. Uh, uh, maybe that's too generous, but an indifference to the facts. You, you know, there is now uh, there is now um, uh, a very comprehensive report written by the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, about the purported effectiveness of these uh, of these policies. Um, uh, it, the 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 record is clear that the the, the policies uh, were not effective in the sense that Donald Trump says that they were. Um, you know, the, the vast majority of people with interrogation experience uh, uh, will say and have said that uh, torture doesn't work. Uh, beyond that, torture is um, torture is illegal under both domestic law and international law. Uh, I think when it comes to um, when it comes to actually uh, crafting policy, uh, Trump is going to have a f- hard time um, finding interrogators uh, who will implement the policy that he describes. And then you have Mike Pompeo again, who uh, Donald Trump has chosen to head the CIA mm-hmm. if he's approved. He objected to the 2014 Senate torture report, saying these men and women are not torturers. They are patriots. The programs being used were within the law, within the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 is that's fantastical. I mean, I, I don't think there's any way to um, uh, to make a serious argument that the policies that were adopted by the Bush administration relating to interrogation were consistent with the Constitution or consistent with the Convention Against Torture. Uh, you know, the 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 memos that justified those policies have been withdrawn. Uh, Bush administration uh, officials have characterized those memos um, as sloppily drafted and indefensible. Uh, I don't think uh, it will be easy for um, a Trump administration to find lawyers who will uh, put those kinds of memos in place again. And even if it can find lawyers who can put those kinds of memos in place again, it will have a hard time finding interrogators who are willing to uh, implement the, the, the policy. So I, I think that, that that is especially true because in the courts now you have these cases in which the people who authorize torture, at least some of the people who authorize torture, uh, are, are for the first time uh, having to defend those actions uh, before a judge uh, and for the first time having to face the prospect of civil liability. I wanted to go to an uh, interview that ta Coates did with President Obama um, for The Atlantic. He asked him about his drone policy. Uh, President Obama said, quote, I think right now we probably have the balance about right. Now, you wouldn't know that if you talk to Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International or some of the international activist organizations. Certainly, you wouldn't know that if you were talking to some of the writers who criticize our drone policy. But I've actually told my staff it's probably good that they stay critical of 
this policy, even though I think right now we're doing the best that we can in a dangerous world with terrorists who would gladly blow up a school bus full of American kids if they could. We probably have got it about right. But if suddenly all those organizations said, OK, the Obama administration's got it right and we don't have a problem here, the instinct towards starting to use it more— and then some of those checks and balances that we've built up starting to decay, that's probably what would happen. So there's an example of where I think, even if the criticism is not always perfectly informed, and in some cases I would deem unfair, just the noise, attention, fuss, probably keeps powerful officials or agencies on their toes. And they should be on their toes when it comes to the use of deadly force. Mm-hmm. Those are the words of President right, Obama. Right, right. You know, I think one um, one really disturbing thing about the, the, the landscape right now is the extent to which um, these policies, the, the, the use of these policies turns on the decisions of a small number of individuals who uh, don't account for and don't have to account for their decisions to any independent uh, actors, right? So really, we are reliant on the good faith of the people in charge. And I do think that President Obama took these decisions seriously. I don't agree with all the decisions he made, but I think he took these decisions seriously, and he tried to put people uh, in positions of power who also took the decision seriously. But uh, they then built a system that, uh, a system of rules, a bureaucratic system that um, required good faith on the part of, of those officials. It relied entirely on the good faith of, of the people in charge. And, uh, you know, we're not supposed to have a government of men and women. We're supposed to have a government of laws. We're supposed to have a government uh, that is subject to checks and balances, where we don't, you know, we're not reliant on the good faith of, of any specific individual. Uh, that's not the system we have right now. Uh, you know, the decisions that President Obama made uh, might be di- very different from the decisions that President Trump makes. Uh, and the authority that President Obama claimed is broad enough that President Trump will be able to uh, make very different decisions relying on exactly the same authority that President o- Obama articulated. Last question, and this has to do with Guantanamo. Um, New York Times wrote last week, the administration had agreed to tell Congress that it intended to transfer 17 or 18 of the 59 remaining prisoners at Guantanamo. They would go to Italy, Oman, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates. If all goes as planned, that would leave 41 or 42 prisoners in Guantanamo for a Trump administration. And we mm-hmm. all know that Trump said, quote, we're going to load it up with some bad dudes. Believe mm-hmm. me, we're going to load it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the fact that President Obama, though he promised in the first year to close Guantanamo, hasn't, yeah. Yeah. is this going to be a massive new facility? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't know. I hope not. I, I think that, you know, we, sh- we need to give President Obama credit for having reduced the population as significantly as he has. But in the long run, uh, I think I worry that more consequential than the reduction of the population there uh, will be the, uh, the, the Obama administration's seeming endorsement of the principle of indefinite detention. Uh, and that is a principle that uh, that that I, that the next administration will 
uh, I fear, use aggressively, uh, if not at Guantanamo, then elsewhere. Um, and the claim that the government has the authority to hold people without charge and trial until the end of a war that, you know, because of the way it's been defined, will never end, uh, I think that that is a very uh, problematic claim that is inconsistent with um, the, the Fifth Amendment and inconsistent with any conception of due process understood by international law. I'll never stop breaking the love for you. I'll never stop helping to pull you through whatever it takes to get what you need. Ignore the alarms, ignore the police. I'll never stop breaking. We're in the last days of President Obama's second term, and I know that many won't ever recognize this, but things are actually pretty good under President Obama. We know that many Trump supporters will never accept it or recognize it. They're in an alternate reality. I told you earlier this week about a PPP poll, which exposed that 39% of Trump supporters think that the stock market is down under Obama, although it's more than doubled. Two thirds of Trump supporters believe that unemployment is up under Obama, although it's been reduced by nearly 50%. 40% of Trump supporters believe that Donald Trump won the popular vote. Another poll says that as high as 52% of Trump supporters believe Trump won the popular vote. He actually lost the popular vote by nearly 3 million votes to Hillary Clinton. 60% of Trump supporters believe that millions of people voted illegally for Hillary Clinton. And nearly three quarters of Trump supporters believe that George Soros paid uh, uh, people to protest Donald Trump events. That, of course, is a fake news story that has been debunked. But by and large, the recent Gallup poll shows that most Americans realize it's been pretty good under President Obama. President Obama's approval rating as he is getting ready to leave office is at 57%. That is 35 percentage points higher than George W. Bush's approval rating was as he was on his way out. This Gallup poll is not an outlier. There's a Rasmussen Reports survey and a Reuters Ipsos survey which also are very close at 54 and 56% approval to the 57% number touted by Gallup. This makes sense to me. If you're just looking at indicators, we've seen a huge reduction in unemployment under President Obama. We've seen a record job creation streak under President Obama. Inflation is totally under control. The stock market has more than doubled. And delusional Trumpists aside, we have the fewest Americans without health insurance for a very long time. Poverty is down. Now, this doesn't mean that everything is great for everyone. If you personally are in poverty, can't afford health insurance, um, can't afford food, have no job, you're not better off necessarily. But we have to talk about the big picture and what types of policies help the largest number of people. Let's see and evaluate what happens under Donald Trump. We have indicators that we can look at. When Donald Trump takes over, what will happen to wages? What will happen to unemployment? What will happen to the stock market? What will happen to income inequality? What will happen to the portion of Americans that have no health insurance? We have measurable data that we can compare and contrast. When we compare President Obama to George W. Bush on the numbers, there is no comparison. I mean, we're talking about orders of magnitude better 
under President Obama than under George W. Bush. It is mathematically undeniable, period. The only way you can come away with a different conclusion is with distraction conspiracy theories like the so-called labor force conspiracy theory that has been a favorite of, of Donald Trump and many of his surrogates and many of the Trumpist supporters have fallen for it as well. And I, the reason I'm talking about this today is very often we have a transition of power and all of a sudden we forget to say, hey, let's just look at the indicators. It's very easy to say, I don't like the president, so things are bad, or I like the president and things are good. We have data we can look at. We have lots of data. And I know that the Trumpists, number one, who are committed to Obama having been a disaster will explain away the data in some way. I know that the Trumpists that are committed to the idea that Trump will make America great again will say that that's what Trump has done once he takes office, regardless of what the numbers are. But as rational thinkers, as individuals who want to be able to say, hey, here's the data, let's not forget as we start to get distance from presidents about what the, those numbers actually tell us. It's very easy to have a general sense of what happened. Yeah, I remember that there was that recession under Bush, but it's been a while. I don't think things were that bad under Bush. Or yeah, there was that, that job creation streak under Obama, but it wasn't a particularly strong economy. Let's keep a close eye on the metrics under Donald Trump as compared to the prior two presidents. And that way we can make a fact-based analysis of how things are going. Is Trump making America great again? Or will Trump be taking America down from uh, what was clearly a very strong eight-year run economically under President Obama? Don't let me down. Don't let me down. We all understand that at a time like this, it is more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you are in a position to stand up when you know others can't. And if your budget's a little bit bloated, what might you be able to cut out to make room to support all of the independent media that you depend on? Maybe you're spending too much on your cable bill, your coffee habit, your cell phone, whatever. It's not exactly building a victory garden, but maybe there's something you can cut back on so you can redirect those funds to your favorite news sources who depend on supporters like you. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default, but I know a lot of people hate them, so I would be happy to set you up with a recurring payment on your credit or debit card using Square. Just shoot me an email, j at bestofleft.com, and I'll send you an invoice to get you started. If you sign up to donate six bucks a month or more, you get access to the members-only podcast, which includes commercial-free versions of the show, as well as some bonus content that I make and tell some stories, mull over some big ideas. So if you get value out of this show and think it's worth supporting it, then I hope you will make the move to become a member today. So again, you can support this independent media show by going to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. Don't let me down Don't let me down 
Richard, let's uh, get your response to these latest figures and how we should understand Obama's legacy or record of 75 months of straight job growth in the United States. Well, I think the way to understand it is to draw a parallel. If you go to a doctor and you want to have an assessment of your health, how you've been doing and how your body is behaving, if the doctor gave you one measure, one test, for example, your blood pressure, or for example, uh, some test of the sugar in your blood, or whatever it was, and said, well, that's it, you're in great health because this one measure makes you look good, you would never see that doctor again. This is not a serious way to assess your health. There have to be many measures of the many dimensions that go into a healthy person's uh, situation. And the same is true of the economy. Yes, it is wonderful for Mr. Obama and his defendants and Mrs. Clinton in the race to talk about one of the measures, one of the relatively few measures, that things have gotten better over the last 10 to 12 years uh, that they're trying to talk about. But the reality is the minute you look at a normally diverse set of measures, the story changes and dramatically. And that's why it's very important to refer to the Katz uh, and Kruger papers because they are a measure of how good the jobs are that were gotten, how secure they are, what benefits go with them. And on almost all of those measures, the situation has deteriorated over the last 10 years. And even if I have a moment to go a bit further, one of the reasons the unemployment number is down is not because unemployed people got jobs, but because unemployed people stopped looking for jobs, they were so depressed. And when that happens, the way we calculate unemployment in the United States, the unemployment number goes down because the number of people without work looking has gone down, but it's not because they got jobs. When you put it all together, the reality is that for working people in the United States, the last 10 years have been very, very bad. And what's worse is they come on top of the previous 20 years when they weren't very good either, which is why the gap between rich and poor has gotten so much more extreme. And to put it all in a blunt way, it's why the predictions that Mr. Obama's successor, Mrs. Clinton, would win the election, that assumption was destroyed. And in large part, it was because the reality of what has happened to working people's situation turned them against the Democratic Party, made them leave the Democratic Party, and particularly the central wing, the Clinton wing. And so we can see in a very dramatic way that these one set of numbers of unemployment simply fail to grasp the reality. It's wonderful uh, that some of your analysis uh, offline, we were talking about, uh, Richard, your radio program and other things you're doing to educate ordinary workers about these kinds of issues. But uh, overwhelmingly, it's, it's difficult for people to understand because this is rather abstract. So when I, uh, over the holidays, every time I met uh, anyone, I asked them about Obama's legacy and uh, 
specifically what they think you know his obstacles were in terms of making lives better for ordinary people like us and uh, often they cite that he inherited a great depression and he had to um, you know uh, work through all the turmoil or economic turmoil that Bush had left behind and uh, and also they make excuses for what he didn't do so let's try to address that question what could he have done well i think it's fair to be fair to him and it's fair to say that he certainly did inherit an economic system in severe crisis the last four months of 2008 here in new york city where i live and work were times when the people in the know working in the federal reserve working in the biggest banks really wondered whether the system was about to break down and not function. And I mean not function in the practical way, the trucks not coming into the city with bread and milk for people, all of that because everything was in such terrible shape. And yes, Mr. Obama comes into office right in the middle of all of that and so has a hard role to hold, I get that. And we're through it. We're not as bad now as we were then. But what could he have done? Well, he could have gotten us to a much, much better place than he chose to do. And let me give just two concrete examples. He followed what really ought to be called trickle-down economics. He helped the people at the top, whether it was by flooding them with money through the Federal Reserve or flooding the big companies with wonderful contracts so that they could do things that were a stimulus to the economy and so on. Help those at the top, recapitalize the banks, give the people at the top all the resources in the hope that it would trickle down to everybody else. And as has always happened when you proceed in that way, the trickling is disappointing. The folks at the top say thank you very much and keep most of it for themselves. That's certainly what happened here. He could have chosen an alternative called trickle up rather than trickle down. Help the people at the bottom, the ones who clearly need it most, working people, unemployed people, poor people, give them the way to spend more money, to have a better life, and that will create the demand for jobs and the profits for the companies who make the things that the mass of people can be empowered to buy. Rather more like what Franklin Roosevelt did the last time capitalism collapsed in the 1930s. Obama could have tried to go in that direction. Well, he didn't. Second point. Sometimes when you say that to the Obama folks, they come back with what you called an excuse, and I think you're right. Well, I couldn't do it because the Republicans wouldn't let me. I didn't have the support from below that would have been sufficient to overcome the obstacles placed in my way by the Republicans who undermined everything I tried to do. Yes, he has a, a point, there's a grain of truth there, but let's be really honest here. A president who wanted to overcome the opposition of the Republican Party and to build a support from below to do that would have had to go out into this country and be the leader folks had hoped he might be when they elected him in 2008. He would have had to respond to all the initiatives from below that showed a population angry and determined to change things 
Had he chosen to be their leader, then there would have been a groundswell from below that might have had a chance to break through the obstacles of the Republican Party. And in 2011, he was given that opportunity. It's called Occupy Wall Street. In 350 cities across America, Real News Network covered it too, there were movements that showed masses of people who wanted fundamental change and would have been the mass base for a change and a confrontation with the Republicans. But Mr. Obama chose not to respond to that. In fact, he coordinated the destruction by bulldozers in many, many of the major cities of America of the encampments that came to symbolize Occupy Wall Street. That is, not only did he not welcome the, the support from below that he said was missing, but when it actually appeared, he helped to destroy it. He can't then come back and say to us, I didn't have the support from below that might have made it possible for me to go in another direction. He unfortunately missed the opportunity created by his own election and by the momentum of that moment. He missed the opportunity to become the kind of leader in this economic collapse of capitalism that Roosevelt was back in the 1930s. And that's not to argue that everything Roosevelt did was wonderful and complete. It wasn't. But compared to what Mr. Obama tried, Mr. Roosevelt went much further. And Mr. Roosevelt proved that if you tax corporations and the rich, which he did, to help the mass of people with Social Security, unemployment compensation, and a public jobs program, which Mr. Roosevelt did, not only do you get out of the depression with trickle up rather than trickle down, but you become the popular president, the most popular president in American history. Roosevelt was reelected three times. No president had ever had an experience like that. You don't fail politically if you do that, you succeed. So Mr. Obama, who wants a legacy now, has to face the daunting reality that he didn't take the steps early in his campaign in the face of this crisis didn't learn from his predecessor as a Democratic president, and now suffers from a weak legacy, but part of the fault therein lies with him. Let's just talk about this. You made a, uh, you had a, a piece um, uh, in response to Tana Hasey Coates' piece in the Atlantic um, uh, about uh, President Obama, and uh, his uh, his story is entitled "My President Was Black," and it's a really, um, uh, it's a, I mean, it's, a, it's he's a great writer. It's worth uh, reading, uh, right. but you do raise a. Um, uh, something that uh, Tana Hasey Coast does not really seem to in any way uh, contemplate, and that is the um, the 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 foreclosure uh, crisis that we had in this country. That, in many respects, um, Obama 
aided insofar as did not implement any real meaningful programs to address the foreclosure crisis head on. Right. And, and, and one of, I wanted to get into that is how this had a disproportionate impact on people of color, um, which is something we know from the statistical analysis. Uh, if you look at the Federal Reserve's survey of consumer finances, they show that the, gap, the racial wealth gap, uh, it expanded in the Obama years and that that was largely due to foreclosures. Um, you know, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates mentions the, the racial wealth gap, and, 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 but he doesn't mention that it expanded under Obama. And when you look into it, that the, the, the reasons why, uh, you, you just can't escape the fact that this was due to, you know, creating a foreclosure mitigation program that didn't mitigate foreclosures, uh, that responding to the largest consumer fraud in American history, this, this false document scandal where people were uh, uh, engaging in foreclosures under false pretenses with fake evidence, uh, responding to that with no sanctions for the, the people involved and, and, and very little meaningful relief uh, for homeowners to reallocate those losses. You know, you have to come to the conclusion that that Obama has some culpability here for this very dramatic disintegration of wealth for African American and Latino families. Uh, I mean, Brad Miller, who um, I don't know if he's been on your program, but he was the former congressman who uh, was credited with uh, co-authoring the the legislation that became the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He has called this a, an extinction event for the black and Latino middle class. That's what he's called the foreclosure crisis. And, and you know, we've gone over on, on uh, you know, talking, me and you, about the myriad ways in which uh, the Obama administration, you know, put their thumbs on the scale uh, in protection of bank balance sheets, but not in protection of homeowner balance sheets. And uh, I just thought... You know, I've seen all of these legacy pieces about the administration and, and, and what Obama meant, and none of them wrestle with this, this part of his legacy, which is part of his legacy. I mean, it's inescapable. You cannot completely talk about who this president was and what he meant without noting that when people of color and, and, and millions of, of American homeowners really needed his leadership that uh, they didn't get it. And, and let's be clear that obviously um, uh, Obama's not responsible for the financial crisis, but the ongoing, the, 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 the nine plus million families who lost their homes, he could not have necessarily saved those, uh, each one of those homes. But there were many different moments where he made a fundamental decision that was contrary to providing direct relief to these people. I mean, absolutely. And, and it, it's, it's, and this is all in this piece and, you know, practically everything I've written in the last six years, uh, this, this was, this was a policy, uh, and, and there were distinct policy choices made 
There were promises made at the beginning of the Obama administration. We're going to put $100 billion towards foreclosure mitigation. Uh, eight years later, $20 billion has been spent. We're going to uh, you know, modify 4 million loans. Uh, eight years later, uh, barely 1 million uh, of these modifications are still active, and, and about 40% of them have failed. Uh, we, we were going to, on the campaign trail, Obama said, we promise we're going to change the bankruptcy laws to allow bankruptcy judges to modify loans uh, for primary residence mortgages. Uh, and then his economic team whipped against that when it came up for a That was the cram down. That was the first sign, yeah. I think, in 2009. I mean, I remember that vividly because that was the first moment where uh, there was some of us emo progs at the time saying, hey, wait a second, this is a problem. Um, yeah. But let me finish. Let me just end this with, with one quote from your piece, because as I hear stories of, and, and this is a good segue into what I'm going to be talking about in the next part of the show, but as I hear stories, uh, we heard some of this last night uh, with um, uh, with Bernie Sanders or uh, two nights ago, the, the town hall with uh, Trump voters where they said, well, we don't really think Trump's going to do that stuff about the Muslim registry <laughs> or that uh, that piece in uh, Vox about uh, the, the county in Kentucky that voted against yeah. Obamacare. But we're like, well, we we don't think he's going to take away, uh, you know, we, we just didn't we, you know, we just think he's going to do what's right, projecting upon Trump these sort of notions without sort of really contemplating the implications of a of a of a completely controlled Congress. I think this quote at the end here is really where the real damage has come. Uh, you write, Coates squarely blames racism for the rise of Trump, but the destruction of faith in institutions also plowed that pathway. Obama sapped the faith when he could have restored it, and now his party the one that believes government can act to protect its citizens is at its lowest ebb in 90 years. Can I just ask you before we get out of here, um, as we as we wrap this up, um, how the two of you metabolized the criticism of Obama, like personally, like what did you make mm. of as you watch the stuff unfold? I will be honest. For the first few years of Obama's presidency, I really actually tried to give the benefit of the doubt about the criticism of Obama. Uh, I grew up in a very conservative place around lots of conservatives, um, and I sort of I get the opposition to the Affordable Care Act. I get all of this. And so for – I mean for the first few years, I kind of absorbed the criticism of Obama as being basically intense partisanship um, and not and not necessarily uh, tied to race. Um, as and, and this is probably also a function of you know when Obama entered office, I was 22 years old, uh, and you're a big, you know, but yeah, yeah. That's 
about to say, what are you doing allowed to do things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think for me, the reaction to his Trayvon Martin remarks, for me, it was a, okay, definitive, this is not about partisanship or not primarily or only about partisanship, that the extent to which um, the resentment of Obama uh, and, and also going to you know Tea Party events and, and, and reporting, basically, reporting, talking to these voters, um, talking to the working class whites that I'm told that I do not understand. Mm-hmm. is what has brought me to a place where I I refuse to disentangle race resentment from partisanship, um, that the two are part of each other, that they're moving together, um, that they influence very deeply the reaction to Barack Obama, and that I firmly believe that 50 years from now, 100 years from now, assuming that there are still historians chronicling the United mm-hmm. States and American politics – that they will look back and laugh with incredulity at the idea that anyone ever thought that racism wasn't primarily a driver here. Mm-hmm. For me, it was never ridiculous that everything about uh, the last eight years had to be filtered through our understanding of race and racism, and not just in this moment, but our historical understanding of it. Um, and that anybody who was trying to do it any other way uh, – was accepting all of the flaws of, the, of their analysis, right? I, I could see the flaws in the analysis from a mile away because I thought, well, yeah, all of that would be perfectly rational and make lots of sense if this were not the United States of America, right? Um, and that to me just seemed to be the assumption that we all needed to operate from. Any, but what about but what about for you personally, Tressie? Are you yeah. saying, you know, I have this history, I know this mm-hmm. stuff, so I wasn't shocked by it? Or did it... Mm-hmm personally affect you in any way seeing the first black president be attacked the way he was were you ever angry watching it oh yeah yeah but i mean you know as is bruce banner says the tr- the trick is i'm always angry <laughs> right like so yeah it's not anger, absolutely i will say i think that watching joe wilson say you lie because i i did have still just a little bit of innocence left about the extent to which deference for the office of president could protect uh, Barack Obama, right? I did. I thought, but, I mean, you know, the grandeur of uh, the office is amazing. Um, I had the opportunity, you know, to go f- to the White House for one of these meetings uh, for the first time a year or so ago. And listen, it's hard to be cynical walking into the freaking White House. Mm-hmm. The the pageantry and the ritual and the history of that place and of that office, I thought, oh, I kind of get it now, right? Like what people have always said, you know, especially conservatives, you know, you respect the office, even if you don't like the person, right? I kind of got it, right? Um, but to think that in the face of all of that pageantry, you could still scream, you lie and wag your finger at the president of the United States. That was, for me, probably the, the end of any shred of innocence I had about how this was going to work. Then I thought, oh, this is going to work just like everything else works in this country. And from that point on, I, I mean, I hate being that person. But, yeah, I was kind of just like, this is going to happen the way uh, race and racism always work. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't think I get like angry very often. It's just not like an emotional register I have. Um, but I do feel despair very intently, intensely. <laughs> and the thing that got, that has gotten me, um, and this is putting Obama's politics aside is that, you know, he really is, uh, kind of a, I really educated constitutional lawyer, 
um, who is seems to be a moral and upright example, American example in, in every way you can imagine. And if Barack Obama is not good enough for some of these people, then none of us are. We just heard clips today from Gay USA, who featured a highlight reel of Obama's contributions to the LGBTQ rights movement. Code Switch discussed Obama's legacy as deporter-in-chief. The Young Turks broke down the political fallout for the Democrats in the wake of the Obama presidency. Democracy Now! spoke with Jamil Jaffer about Obama's national security legacy. David Pakman went through some of the economic data on the Obama presidency, which is, at the very least, far better than Trump voters seem to think it is. The Real News Network had on Professor Richard Wolff to dig a little bit deeper and give some context to those economic numbers. The Majority Report spoke with David Dayen about the racial wealth divide under Obama. And finally, we just heard a second clip from Code Switch discussing the underlying racism that permeated the Obama administration from beginning to end. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. It's been a long show, no time for voicemails today, but I do have a story for you. I heard from Jasmine after the previous episode, uh, I assume in direct reference to that episode, and I've heard from Jasmine on uh, Twitter before. She always has interesting thoughts. It just makes sense. Her handle is Jasmine's Thoughts, and if her profile picture is to be believed, she is a woman of color, and this is uh, what she had to say about that episode. The narrative that people don't care about Trump voters' economic anxiety is so obnoxious, especially considering the fact that she, meaning Hillary, received more working-class votes. Each time the left coddles those people feels like a slap in the face. And then she linked to a graph that showed that uneducated whites are the only group that swing wildly towards Trump, whereas uneducated presumably working-class non-whites, did not do that. Uh, So that's why Hillary Clinton can get more working-class votes, but we end up with this narrative, because the media generally likes to focus on white people. Let's get get it real. Uh, So it it feels to the media that, oh, you know, Hillary couldn't connect with working-class voters. All the working-class voters voted for Trump, which is obviously not true. Only the white ones did. So this comment from Jasmine forced me to sort of organize my thoughts on my philosophy behind, you know, why would I, as a person who runs this show, who clearly cares a lot about structural racism and inequalities, why would I make a show uh, like the previous one that was focused a lot on economics, but also uh, a lot of discussion about how to appeal progressive economic policies to conservative-minded people. And since I I plan to publish future episodes in a similar vein uh, with similar themes, but absolutely don't want anyone to feel like they're being slapped in the face, here's what I said to Jasmine, and and I'll try to flesh out these ideas as we go, and hopefully that clarifies things for anyone uh, who had similar concerns as Jasmine. So I started by saying I agree the whiteness of Trump voters is clearly more of a factor than their economic station, but 
the two are related. I also believe in the analysis uh, that the idea of whiteness was originally created specifically as an economic idea to divide the poor amongst themselves. There were the poor or indentured white people back in colonial America and the enslaved black people, and all evidence seems to show that there wasn't automatic animosity between those two groups. They sort of worked side by side. There was some intermarriage. uh, There were some interracial slave rebellions that went on. And so it seems that the powers that be, the rich people, the slave owners of the time, decided, well, obviously we can't have this. We can't have all of our poor and enslaved people rising up against us. So they decided to institute laws and cultural norms that elevated whites above everyone else and said, no, 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 you shouldn't find common cause with those other poor people who are just like you. You're white like us, which makes you better. So even though you're still poor and we're still grinding you into the dirt with the heel of our boot, you can always know that at least you're better than black people. And that is essentially how it all started. I mean, think back to all the conflict on the British Isles. All those people are white, but they certainly didn't think of themselves as all being white. They thought of themselves based on their nationalities or even just their clans or their religions. People find a lot of reasons to divide themselves. Uh, Race was never really one of them until it became economically advantageous to convince people that they should divide themselves based on race. So that clearly worked back then, and the echoes of that system are still being heard today in the results of this past election. You can look at the graph and see that working class, non-college educated people, only if they're white, went for Trump. If they weren't white, they, for the most part, didn't go for Trump. So there's still this racial divide in our mindsets. So take that as the frame and then recognize that as economic precariousness rises among whites, so does racial animosity. And they end up scapegoating the people who they think must be the problem. Because hundreds of years later, we are still being convinced to blame people who don't look like us even though they are at a similar or lower economic level than us, rather than targeting our anger at the rich and the powerful who are actually controlling the system that are keeping us down. So these white people with their economic anxieties have completely misplaced their anger, but there is a long history that helps explain that. Also, I think that structural white supremacy, as I just described, actually victimizes these whites, not nearly to the degree as the intended targets of people of color, but as I just described, it it distracts them from focusing on the real culprits where they should be putting their actual anger. And so for that, and a whole lot of other reasons that I don't have time to go into, white people are actually victimized by the system of white supremacy that if they believed it existed, they would assume would help them out a lot because they're white. And they're like, well, I'm I'm poor, so there must not be such a thing as white supremacy. But that's the point. The system is actually working against them for economic reasons, and they just can't see it. 
So since we are all victimized by the system, I think it makes sense to try to go back to fix that original bridge that was broken and try to reach across and make common cause across racial lines and recognize that working people, poor people across all races really have the same fight. And so it is those working class white people for whom economics is their primary driver. You know, they're, they're not crazed with racism. It's just sort of a low-level hum of racism like we all have. For people who are mostly focused on economics, I feel like they are ripe to be swayed by a strong progressive economics message. Um, but in the absence of that, they are much more likely to be seduced by white supremacy and nationalism and someone like Trump. So I don't see advocacy for progressive economics that appeals to white people as coddling those white people, but as part of a unified strategy that actually links economics and class with the fight against white supremacy and, inter and for intersectionality more broadly. And of course, I know that there are people out there shouting from the rooftops right now, we have to focus on economics, screw all this talk about identity or racism or anything like that, or, or gender or sexual. Don't talk about any of it. You're just pissing people off. Don't piss off the white people, whatever you do. We have to convince them to vote Democrat, so don't talk about any of those other things. I don't think that's the way to go at all. Uh, there were clips in that uh, past episode that tried to make that point that you can do both. We can have a conversation about the specific oppressions of people based on their identities while we are making common cause and recognizing the intersectionalities of economics and class that combine with identity and put forward genuinely economic proposals that help everyone across the board while maintaining that solidarity across race and gender and every other identity. So hopefully that clarifies things a bit for anyone who needed some clarification on my philosophy behind, you know, why I would make a, an episode like the one that uh, just came out. I, I'm certainly not saying that I've got this all completely on lockdown and I know exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm always open to any kind of critiques and I'm happy to continue to uh, expand and improve my own philosophy on this. So keep the comments coming in. As always, the number 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trainedly Cursed past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We curtsy past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We curtsy past our own sad stories
Stories and forget who it is we're fooling.